Hey everybody, this is your host David Rayburn and we have the pleasure of having Dr. Tyler Severance back uh, on the show with us today. Welcome Dr. Severance. Hey, thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Good to see you as always and happy to chat with everyone that's listening and help you guys navigate the dangerous territory of Boardsylvania. <laughs> well, if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to our previous talk on oncologic emergencies, Dr. Severance helped us out with that. So go back and listen. Initially, this was going to be a two-part series, but we're actually going to space it out into a three-part series because we just decided that there's a lot of information to cover here. We don't want to overload you, and we want to keep it in digestible chunks. That, that's quite fair. Um, I know I'm, I can be one to ramble and talk a lot, so um, I think that fits well with the, with the general flow of things. Um, I think the, the way that it's divided up now, we'll do um, leukemias, lymphomas as section one, and then we'll do solid tumors as section two. Um, we'll tease out some of the high yield points, uh, hopefully get you guys the, the best score on these oncology questions and, and help you rock the boards. All right, and just a review, Hemont covers about 2.5% of the board content, but most of the questions are geared towards basic knowledge. So we're going to try and focus on the high-yield stuff. Uh, as, as Dr. Severance mentioned, he, he can ramble a little bit, but it's only for your benefit because he's going to give you just more knowledge than you even know you needed. All right, let's bring it. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and start with leukemias. Obviously a big topic, but hopefully we can make it a little bit easier for our listeners to understand and you guide us. Yeah, so leukemias are important for a number of reasons, and uh, the board writers, they really like it because it's, it's really common. Um, and so when we think of common malignancies in pediatrics, it's leukemia, leukemia, leukemia. Um, I, I do want to put a disclaimer in here. Leukemia in children is very different than leukemia in adults. And so I know in adult land, they have things like CML for C meaning chronic. Um, they have more long-standing smoldering diseases that can progress. In pediatrics, this is all about acute disease. And so when we talk about leukemias, we're specifically referring to ALL, meaning acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and AML, acute myeloid leukemia. And I think that it's, it's important to make that recognition right off the bat in case there are folks that have uh, a little bit of experience working with adults. And I think that helps frame our discussion a little better. All right. I like it. And I think that definitely makes sense and is a good way to approach this from my limited knowledge of hematology and oncology. So I appreciate that. Um, no, I'm happy to help. The, I think the next step is defining leukemia in general. Commonly, it's thought of as a cancer of the bone marrow in the blood. So if you think way back to your step one days, you think of our bone marrow, it's full of these very rich hematopoietic stem cells, and what happens is, is they gradually differentiate out. I tell patients that they, these, these stem cells are responsible for the three main blood types. There's red blood cells, there's platelets, and there's white blood cells. Um, leukemias represent renegade replication of those white blood cells. And so before we talk about you know, the, the basics of ALL, um, again, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and AML, acute myeloid leukemia, um, I think differentiating those two is important. Um, ALL is a disorder of lymphocytes. And specifically, when our white blood cells are, are maturing, um, they can differentiate into the myeloid cell lines or the lymphocyte cell lines. The lymphocytes are responsible for your T cells and your B cells. Um, and as such, we have a B cell leukemia and a T cell leukemia. Those types of things are more on my boards. Um, but what's important for you guys is to know that those cells are puny and fragile. And typically, when we see those, the patients usually have phenomenal outcomes because they're puny, fragile, and they're easy to treat. Um, myeloid cells from AML are a little bit tougher and stickier. 
and we'll talk about this here in a few minutes, but those are a little bit tougher to treat, and so your prognosis isn't going to be quite as favorable. All right, fair enough, yeah. I think that that's probably not highly testable, but ALL usually in pediatrics has really good outcomes, which is just a good a good feeling thing in considering what we're talking about here. Yeah, and, and as, as our listeners are probably well aware, um, and it's worth repeating, pediatric cancer as a whole, outcomes are way better than adults. Um, the overall cancer survival rate um, in pediatric cancer is greater than 80%. And so, and when we see these new diagnoses, recognize that patients are doing better and better every year. Um, pediatric patients tolerate chemo better. Their diseases are such that they respond better. And overall, we're, we're very fortunate to work with this population. All right. And, and then especially as a side plug, um, word on the street is that if you have standard or low-risk ALL, your outcomes are better than if you were to have a new diagnosis of, say, type 1 diabetes. So I don't know who does the endocrine talks, but tell them I said, take that. (laughs) Point oncology. Uh, I think now we can kind of make the transition into the clinical findings associated with leukemia. As we we talk about it, again, I want to reemphasize, this is a disease of the bone marrow, renegade replication of white blood cells, and they gradually spread out to the rest of the body. Um, one of the things that I stress when I'm doing more medical student discussions is that there are four P's that are classically associated with this. I know we love our mnemonics here. Exactly. Pallor, parexia, purpura, and pain. And so if you wanted to add a fifth one, it would be pancytopenia, but it doesn't quite flow as well. If you think about it, the bone marrow is full of these renegade replicating white blood cells. So your, your bone marrow gets gradually crowded out, meaning your, your red blood cell production is going to be decreased, your platelet production is going to be decreased, therefore you're going to see anemia, you're going to see the fatigue, um, you're going to see the purpuric changes in the skin as you check a lab count, you see their platelets are four. You can get that general sense of inflammation in the body, so fever is a pretty common symptom, fever, fatigue, um, if you were to check those inflammatory markers, they'd be sky high. And then pain is also a big one. Um, and so especially in our younger kids that can't always tell us what's going on, oftentimes the first symptom is that they're not walking right. And in that sense, the, we suspect that the pain in their bones from a crammed, cracked, you know, crowded bone marrow is, is so, so powerful that it just hurts. And the good news is that usually that goes away pretty quickly once you start treatment. But recognize that that's where you're going to get your main symptoms of leukemia um, that are going to clue you in that there's something not right in the bone marrow space. That's actually a great way to think of it, and I wish that you and I would have had this talk before I took the boards. Thankfully, I passed the boards, but that would have been helpful to think about how it's just crowding everything else out and look at the downstream effects. But um, And you can tell that I've explained this to children and toddlers way too many times, but I describe the bone marrow as a magical forest, and there are these evil Bambies, um, a.k.a. our renegade white blood cells, and they just eat everything, they crowd it all out, and next thing you know, all your plants, other animals, they're all gone. Um, and so I think if it works for a seven-year-old, it works very well here as well. Check. I know we touched on this briefly a few minutes ago, but in terms of outcomes associated with ALL and AML, I would say ALL, um, typically your standard risk patients are going to have 90% plus long-term survival. Uh, we say long-term, we mean four to five years, um, because once you're beyond that window, usually you're not seeing relapse. Um, AML is usually going to hover around 60% long-term survival. Uh, so not, not quite as, as robust, but we've made a lot of progress over the last uh, 20 years or so. And so we're making, we're making strides there, but know that once we see those blasts on a, on a blood smear, we know that leukemia is going to be the diagnosis. We are really leaning towards ALL. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
So I know that there are some disorders that are associated with increased risk of leukemia, and I think this is probably highly testable, especially with the one being Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Are there any others that we should consider? So there there are. I, I don't know if they're going to go beyond the Down syndrome testing. Um, the ones that, that are going to come up on your on a prep question um, would be neurofibromatosis, specifically type 1, um, Bloom syndrome, ataxia, telangiectasia. Um, but what's important to note is that a lot of the guidelines are shifting. And so even if you are at an increased risk of leukemia, if you have a predisposition syndrome, the surveillance guidelines are, are changing such that we're becoming less and less invasive. The Really, you, we are learning this information, but we're not doing a lot with it. And so that's why I'm, I know Down syndrome is kind of in its separate category. Down syndrome is a risk factor for everything. Uh, but some of these other syndromes, I think, are less testable. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to management, if you're okay with that. Obviously, this is probably the meat of the discussion, but also one that we could very easily get into the weeds. Correct. Um, So this is where you've done your bone marrow biopsy, you've confirmed it's leukemia, um, you're getting ready to start your your treatment. Conceptually, one of the reasons that ALL is so favorable is because these are super puny cells, and they are sensitive to things like simple steroids. So literally, a dose of steroids is going to go in, and it's going to start killing off some of these cells. As such, we can get by with ALL therapy that's very moderate in intensity rather than the super extreme ones. And so these are patients that are just going to get hit with years and years of this moderate intensity therapy because that's what's worked best for these patients. So steroids kind of becomes the backbone of early treatment and also of maintenance therapy. We also use a number of other drugs that, that are probably um, stored deep, deep back in your brain. You know, the vincristines, the methotrexates, the mercaptopurines, you know, the pegasparaginase. I've, I've seen you respond to a code where somebody reacted to one of those. Those are things that we, you know, are more important for my boards, but know conceptually that treatment for ALL is usually on the order of years. Dramatic change of pace compared to AML. So AML, remember, these guys are sticky, tough evil mean cells. And if you throw steroids or moderate intensity therapy at them, they're going to laugh it off. They're going to they're going to just wipe it away and say this is too puny. Therefore, we hit these guys and we hit them hard. And so for the, when we see a patient with AML, I want you to think of this in terms of 4 to 5 really high intensity cycles. And a chemotherapy cycle uh, typically starts with a high dose burst of chemotherapy for about 4 to 7 days at the beginning. And then a three-week period where we're literally just waiting for their their counts to drop and then recover back up again. And so these are the patients that are going to have a three- to four-week-long hospital stay because they are at such high risk for um, febrile neutropenia, which you guys are already well aware of from listening to the last podcast. They'll need frequent transfusions, usually blood and platelets, and they're just super vulnerable. As such we wouldn't want to expose these patients to a long-term maintenance phase. Um, These are ones that are just, we're going to get in there, we're going to do our four to five cycles, and we'll be done. Um, With the only exception being if they show any signs of being resilient or stubborn, so if they still have disease after the first cycle, or maybe they have um, genetics that aren't favorable, those are patients that we're going to have a very low threshold to send them to our colleagues in the stem cell transplant service and wave goodbye and wish them luck as they get a, um, you know, either a matched donor or a haplotransplant from a family member. So much more likely an AML to see a stem cell transplant. That'd be extremely rare in ALL, correct? Yeah, usually ALL, it's in patients that are, that are having persistent disease after multiple rounds of chemotherapy or you're seeing multiple relapses. 
um, with obvious exceptions in, in terms of genetics and newer protocols. But in general, for transplants, think AML. Sure. Sounds good. Anything else from the leukemia side of things, or do you want to move on to our next segment? I think that we've, we've covered most of the highlights. Um, I, if I could give one other high-yield shout-out, um, and I know I'm reiterating from our last podcast, but in general, leukemias, you make a lot of progress early on in therapy. And so in your first couple days of treatment, you're really turning over a lot of cells. And, and Dr. Rayburn, I'm going to give you the layup here. What are they at <laughs> risk for as we're turning over and we're shredding down these cells? we got to worry about tumor lysis syndrome. E- exactly. So these are the, the patients where you may get walked through a board question where it's you say, oh, I bet this is leukemia. And then they tell you it's leukemia in the next sentence. You say, oh, they're going to start therapy. And they start therapy. And then five days later, they're going to be at risk for something. And, or three days later, they'll be at risk. And, and these are the patients you got to watch out for, um, for that tumor lysis, which, you know, the rising potassium, rising uric acid, the kidney failures, um, and just the need for, for critical intervention. Perfect. Let's uh, jump over to lymphomas then. How's that sound? Ah, we could do it. There's, there's a lot of overlap. Leukemias and lymphomas often go hand in hand, and I intentionally did not really highlight the lymphadenopathy associated with leukemia. Again, for leukemia, we think of renegade replication of white blood cells in the bone marrow space. Lymphomas, though, if you think of lymph nodes, they're actually little conglomerations of white blood cells. And so when you think of a, an enlarging white or a lymph node that's full of these white blood cells, you can often get spillage into the peripheral blood. You can get a lot of the systemic symptoms that you would see with a leukemia. Um, So much so that when we diagnose lymphoma, we are always going to put a needle into the bone marrow under sedation. And so we can go in there and we can take, take, uh, take some cells out of that space and really look for it and see if there's anything hiding there. Um, And so know that there's a lot of overlap in both the diagnosis and the treatment of these disorders. However, Lymphomas do recognize themselves as their own separate category. And uh, I think that's important because in addition to the leukemias, which were, again, immature cells that were, that were coming out of the marrow, lymphoma can have more mature, sophisticated cells in there. And so there are a couple other types and distinctions that are worth talking about. Um, for the boards, they're going to divide them into two types. There is going to be your Hodgkin lymphoma and the cleverly named non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Really went deep in the pocket for that naming, didn't they? Correct. Um, So Hodgkin lymphoma, again, if I'm sending you back to step one, um, this is the question where they're going to give you a biopsy. They're going to beautifully describe those Reed-Sternberg cells. And I think those guys were way back in the early 1900s. But they might even put a picture up and you'll see these cells that almost have these owl eye appearance. Buzzword. Uh, Do you guys have like a little chime, ding, 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 buzzword? Ashley will put it in there. Wonderful. Um, so these are the ones that are going to have the multi-lobulated nuclei. They're going to look like owl's eyes. Um, and so they might have a simple question about how do you diagnose Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is going to be everything else. And when I say everything else, I mean Burkitt's lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, lymphoblastic lymphoma. Remember, lymphoblasts, those are T and B-cells. And then the anaplastic large cell lymphoma. A whole bunch of categories, the, the details of which are not super critical for the boards, but know that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a large category of, of these own specific types of lymph node disorders. I think that's a good way to kind of remember the, the difference between the two. 
the so the the way the boards will attack this, um, they want you to be aware of the clinical findings. Um, they want you to know a little bit about how to work it up, and they want you to know at least a little bit about um, what are some of the things that can go wrong during an emergent situation. Everything else is going to get shifted over to my boards. Perfect. I didn't want to take your boards anyways. Perfect. I, I can't blame you. I'm not excited about it either. So general clinical findings with lymphoma, lymphoma, oma, meaning a mass. Uh, this is just essentially think of it as a, an enlarged or swollen lymph node. The trick, though, is that I don't like putting a true size on lymph nodes because different patient ages, different locations have different kind of size constraints. But in general, if you see a lymph node greater than two centimeters, that's when we start to think true enlargement. I put a little caveat out there. Um, if you have a neonate, um, I would be suspicious if there was anything greater than a centimeter. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be bad, but just put that on your radar um, that neonates get less wiggle room in terms of their, their lymph node coverage. Other clinical findings, you guys should be aware of the B symptoms. This is, uh, well, let's learn the B symptoms to get an A+. Plus. See what I did there? I see what you did um, there. I'm sorry, folks, I'm not going to get invited back with these terrible jokes. But B symptoms, uh, prolonged fevers, weight loss, uh, specifically weight loss greater than 10% of your body weight, and then night sweats. And I can tell you from clinical experience, the night sweats aren't subtle. Um, this is going to be the patient that has that is wake, waking up in the morning with drenched sheets and the mom's complaining about doing the laundry every day. Or dad could be complaining too. Otherwise, in terms of the labs to keep an eye out for, you can have changes in blood counts as the disease progresses. So typically happening later on, be wary of your elevated inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP. Those are things that are gonna obviously skyrocket in diffuse states of inflammation. And then if I ever get a call about a doc that's worried about one of these folks, um, I'm gonna recommend checking for tumor lysis labs because even if you're not treating, you'll still see a lot of rapid turnover. Just because of that high turnover, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the very nonspecific LDH can also point you in the, in the direction of cells turning over. All right, very good. How, how in-depth do we need to get in the diagnostic evaluation of lymphadenopathy? So that's a good question. I would say for the boards, not a ton, but if you want to be a good doctor, um, I think it's a really helpful thing to at least talk out loud. If you're, if you're jogging down the, down the sidewalk, you can turn this up to one and a half times speed. But I would just say that I think that lymphadenopathy is, a, is an important entity to understand. Again, this is the enlarged lymph node. Um, lymphadenopathy is an enlarged node. I want to differentiate that from lymphadenitis, which is an enlarged and inflamed lymph node. And so the, you have a patient or a mom comes in and says, hey, you know, my child's got this, this bump. Some of the things that you're going to think through, obviously the first answer is going to be, um, you know, do they look sick? Yes or no. If yes, let's work this up quickly. If not, let's get in a little bit more detail. You're going to get a better history here, and this is important. Is this a patient that's got, you know, upper respiratory-like symptoms, a fever, or a tender lymph node in the cervical chain? That's going to push me in a different direction than if I have a patient that's got a, an enlarged supraclavicular lymph node. The reason supraclavicular nodes are important is those are almost always ominous. Those are, if you find a good enlarged supraclavicular node, that should make you suspicious. Other things that are, you're going to tease out in the history, you know, how long has this been going on? Um, I just mentioned the B symptoms earlier. Are there prolonged fevers? Are there night sweats? Is there a lot of weight loss? I would make sure you get an exposure history too. We don't want to be the doctors that are missing out on the the newly adopted stray kitten that just scratched you right on top of the node that's that's inflamed. Again, shout out to Ted Nugent, Cat Scratch Fever, a little Bartonella. If I could have a theme song, it would be that one. <laughs> I would say other things to keep an eye out for. 
remember any respiratory symptoms, you're gonna have a super low threshold to get a chest X-ray. If you're, if you're worried about systemic symptoms, I think it's always worthwhile to check labs, make sure you're not missing anything. And please, uh, dear readers out there, if you're getting a CBC, make sure you're getting a differential with it. Um, that is just so critically important. Whether it's a machine or a human that does the diffs, it's important that at least somebody's looking to make sure we're not missing something that's smoldering. In terms of the process, if your patient is well appearing, most of the time this workup for lymphadenopathy is gonna be on the order of several weeks, maybe three to four weeks. Um, that gives you a chance to see if it's progressing. Um, it gives you a chance to trial two weeks of antibiotics to see if we can get it to improve a little bit. You'll notice that one of the things I did not say was steroids. I was actually going to comment on that. No steroids for these people, correct? Correct. Until you have a tissue-confirmed diagnosis, I would absolutely not send steroid or give steroids. That is going to get you some, some not-so-pleasant remarks from your friendly neighborhood oncologist. Make sure you're digging into the history. Make sure you're giving it a little bit of time, some thought. One of the things that's very reassuring, if it ever gets smaller or gets better, that it is almost never a malignancy. Malignancies get better with chemotherapy, um, not with antibiotics. And so something to keep in the back of your mind. And then the last thing I want to I wanna note, because I think it can save some patients out there an extra procedure, I'm going to paint two scenarios for you. And I want you to tell me which one you would prefer. Let's say you got a patient an enlarging node for four weeks, it's non-tender, it's you know, right there, say it's supraclavicular, and you're worried about it and you're going to get a biopsy. And there's two types of biopsies you can do. On one hand, you could say, oh, I'm going to give you a nice easy procedure, a little fine needle aspiration, I'll go in there, just suck out a few cells, send them down, send it down to pathology, it'll barely leave a scar. Or I could be a little bit more invasive, but I can remove a, the entire node as an excisional biopsy. Probably going to leave a scar, a little bit more invasive. It's going to hurt a little bit, but it takes out the whole node. We're cutting it out. Cut the whole thing out. Exactly. I was worried I was going to have to sell you on part two of this story. <laughs> part one is the pathology, uh, pathologist sends you the report that says it's inconclusive. I, you know, I only got a couple cells, but it, the cells I see don't look that bad, but I'm not quite sure. And then you're going back down and you're taking the rest of it out. Whereas in option B, you take the whole thing out, you preserve that rich architecture, all the, the lymph node hierarchy and structure, it's all there. You know there's no sampling error, and you know that you are getting the absolute best definitive answer. That's like Christmas to the pathologist. It is. Um, they get really excited. So much so they might even talk to you on the phone. <laughs> I apologize to any budding pathologists out there. All right, so I think that's a pretty good overview of lymphomas. Yeah, if I could just highlight a few other things. Um, if you're getting a next step question, something that I want to be very high on everyone's radar is a chest x-ray. Um, I know we talked about this again in a previous sample, but high yield, you need to know that if you have lymph nodes elsewhere, um, those may just be symptomatic spread. Um, there may be a primary mass, especially in the chest, so make sure you get a good long exam and make sure you're checking out the mediastinum. The other thing, again, I say this, I've said this a couple times, but early on in treatment, when you start to turn these cells over, especially something like Burkitt's lymphoma that seems to just melt away, these are the patients that are at risk for tumor lysis syndrome. Um, so just know to keep an eye out for those things, and I think you'll be poised for success. Great. All right. Well, we really appreciate it. All of our listeners, please tune in for part three, uh, talking about solid tumors with Dr. Severance. Thanks again, Dr. Severance. It's a solid plan.